President Joe Biden come along, and I noticed that there's not a lot of support for President Biden amongst our Anabaptist people. And I noticed a lot of strong opinions and ideas. Uh, maybe I'd go so far as to say some mocking, some scoffing, uh, things like that. Along comes COVID. Our attitudes, uh, in my opinion, could have used some help over here. Um, without getting into any of that, uh, thinking my way through this, I found myself talking to someone and saying, you know, we need, we need some better teaching on how to relate to governments and how to, um, how to deal with all of this. And um, I realized that I do have opportunities to preach and it's not fair to make everybody else do the heavy lifting and come up with what should be preached on. If the Lord lays the burden on my heart, then I should be talking about it. So, I put together a sermon and preached it over there at IGO and decided that if I get asked to preach on it over here, I'll preach on it over here. So, I don't think the issues are um, the problem. I think the theology behind the issues is the problem, and our understanding of how we should relate to government. Let me put it this way. When I grew up, I uh, went to school at Shady Grove Christian School. We used the ACE curriculum. Don't know if you've ever heard of it, but it, um, it's rather patriotic. My boys right now are in um, a Becca curriculum, which is also very patriotic. Patriotic meaning that, um, you know, it's uh, God and uh, America. Uh, the two are sort of synonymous. Um, America is a Christian nation, and we need to uh, keep it that way or make it more that way. And I believe our problem then is when we interact with people and they say, well, at the, at the shop this past week, I heard somebody tell my dad, about Roe versus Wade, we won that one, didn't we? Or something like that. Um, it's typical for Christians to want to see the kingdom of God advanced using politics, using government, using law. And I, I want to preach or teach this concept here and then see what you think about it at the at the end so I stand to be corrected on this I did get a lot of my information from an article by Anabaptist viewpoint some of you might know about that um, you can go on the internet and get it anabaptistviewpoint.org um, I did something that's <clears throat> not normal for uh, somebody who's trying to preach a sermon or really do uh, something that's educated or well-researched. I went to something called Wikipedia online. It's not a source, a proper source, but it is a crowdsourced information site, which means that anybody can go on and fix it. So usually what's on there is fairly solid. So what I did was went on there 
to look up the two kingdom doctrine because we talk about two kingdoms. And I found it very interesting that they have a section on Anabaptist Christianity in the two kingdom doctrine. This is what it says. There's two different kingdoms on earth, namely the kingdom of this world and the peaceful kingdom of Christ. These two kingdoms cannot share or have communion with each other. The people in the kingdom of this world are born of the flesh, are earthly and carnally minded. The people in the kingdom of Christ are reborn of the Holy Spirit, live according to the Spirit, and are spiritually minded. The people in the kingdom of the world are equipped for fighting with carnal weapons, spear, sword, armor, guns, and powder. The people in Christ's kingdom are equipped with spiritual weapons, the armor of God, the shield of faith, the sword of the Spirit, to fight against the devil, the world, and their own flesh, together with all that arises against God and his word. The people in the kingdom of this world fight for a perishable crown and an earthly kingdom. The people in Christ's kingdom fight for an imperishable crown and an eternal kingdom. Christ made these two kingdoms at variance with each other and separated. There will therefore be no peace between them. In the end, however, Christ will crush and destroy all the other kingdoms with his power and eternal kingdom, but his will remain eternally. That's straight off of Wikipedia. Sounds pretty good to me. <clears throat> but also, in the same article, I discovered that Martin Luther uh, says this, God has therefore ordained two regiments, the spiritual, by which the Holy Spirit produces Christians and pious folks under Christ, and the secular, which restrains unchristian and evil folk. So they are obliged to keep outward peace, albeit by no merit of their own. That's Martin Luther. Ah, that's not so far off, is it? Sounds pretty good. So Lutherans believe in a two-kingdom concept uh, in, similar to what we're talking about here. But then we go to the next one is John Calvin shows up in that uh, section. John Calvin, it says, deployed two-kingdom language with somewhat different aims, and his practical stance was more activistic. He sought to protect the church from the encroachments of the state, and to emphasize that Christians have a spiritual obligation to the state, and to emphasize that, uh, sorry, but that the temporal realm does not have the independence that it was described by Luther. So John Calvin's putting them together more. Despite similarities in language, this difference helps to account for the profound contrast between the passivity of the Lutheran tradition toward the state and the historic pattern of social and political idea activism, ideactivism it's called, evident among Reformed Christians. Calvin's role underscores his conviction that distinctively Christian concerns have an important role in the public arena and that magistrates are ob obligated to further Christian virtues. Are you following that? 
John Calvin's basically saying, oh no, we don't just, you know, hole up in our little communities or, or uh, put our heads down and whatever happens, happens. No, no, we need to stand up. We need to hold the magistrates accountable because they are obligated to further Christian virtues. That's Calvin, according to Wikipedia. Again, you know, take it for what it's worth. But what, what is Anabaptist theology on this, and, and where does it fit in? So I want to, my brother Matt and Mike went to a lot of work to get this up here. And if you can't see in the back and you want to move front, help yourself. I decided to make a little drawing of how this might look. And I want to contrast the two kingdoms here this morning. So it starts with the earth, its vast population of people, all created in God's image. I put creator, redeemer, and friend. It's a trinity. I'm not sure friend's the best word, but uh, the Holy Spirit lives in us, our comforter. And what I'd like you to notice now are the kingdoms that I just randomly plunked all over that earth. Those are the various nations and kingdoms of this world. A sovereign God sets up and takes down these governments according to his will. So I put that little blue arrow there, and in the black text it says authority over earthly kingdoms. I'm suggesting to you that God is the one who has the authority over these earthly kingdoms. He sets up who he wants, he takes down who he wants. I'm going to read some verses, you don't need to turn to them. Daniel 2.37 says, Thou, O king, art a king of kings, for the God of heaven hath given thee a kingdom power and strength and glory. Verse 21, Daniel 2:21 says, and he changeth the times and the season, he removeth kings and setteth up kings. He giveth wisdom unto the wise and knowledge unto them that know understanding. Daniel 4:17 says, this matters by the decree of the watchers and the demand of the word of the holy ones to the intent that the living may know that the most high ruleth in the kingdom of men and giveth it to whomsoever he will, and setteth up over it, can somebody finish that? The, it's a King James word, starts with a B, blank of men. Basest. Basest. What does that mean? Setteth up over it the basest of men. Somebody help me out. Lowest. Lowest. Of men. In other words, God doesn't only set up good rulers, he sets up the worst people as rulers sometimes. With this in mind, oh, actually, I got two more verses I'm going to give you yet. Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. As rivers of water, he turneth it whithersoever he will. My mind goes to a water hose. It's not exactly the proper whatever, but I love to spray a water hose around. I was 
doing drywall and cleaning out buckets and stuff and you can really make stuff happen just spray that water around and get the job done the Lord does that with the heart of the king John 12:11. Jesus answered thou couldest have no power at all against me except it were given thee from above therefore he that delivered me unto you hath the greater sin you would have no power except it were given thee from above so, with that in mind now, I'd like to turn to Romans chapter 13. And the, uh, the reason I want to do this, in uh, the Viewpoint article that I was reading, it suggested that there's a difference between Romans 12 and Romans 13. Romans 12 is more toward the believer. Romans 13 is more toward the uh, government's. So, I'd like to just read the chapter of Romans 13. It says, <clears throat> Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there's no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power resisteth the ordinance of God. And they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. For rulers <clears throat> are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same. For he is the minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid. For he beareth not the sword in vain. For he is the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. Wherefore ye must needs be subject, not only for wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For for, for this cause... Pay ye tribute also, for their God's ministers, attending continually upon this very thing. Render therefore to all their dues, tribute to whom tribute is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Owe no man anything but to love one another, for he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. For this thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, thou shalt not covet. And if there be any other commandment, it's briefly comprehended in this saying, namely, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Love worketh no ill to his neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. And that knowing the time, that now is, not, is high time to awake out of sleep, for now is our salvation nearer than when we believe, that night is far spent, the day is at hand, let us therefore cast off the works of darkness, put on the armor of light, let us walk honestly as in the day, not in rioting and drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness, not in strife and envyings. But put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ, and make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. <clears throat> now you see the tone change at the end of this chapter, I think, anyway. And I would like to... Uh, I would like to point out that it, it feels pretty clear to me that there's good governments and there's bad governments. The government in Thailand is very different than the government here. Um, but we are able to uh, be Christian. We're able to uh, share the gospel. And um, I would suggest to you that God is the one who sets up governments and takes them down ultimately. It's within his power. 
Back to our PowerPoint. There is also a heavenly kingdom that consists of the global church of Christ. It's all the Christian people and all the churches around the world. So there's little dots that circle around the world. Those are supposed to represent all the local churches all around the globe. Again, just a series of verses. You don't need to turn to them. But John 18, 36, Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now is my kingdom not from hence. Luke 17, 20 and 21. And when he was demanded of the Pharisees when the kingdom of God should come, he answered them and he said, The kingdom of God cometh not with observation. Neither shall they say, Lo here or lo there. For behold, the kingdom of God is within you. It seems clear that he's talking about a spiritual kingdom that's all throughout the world and inside each of us who are Christians by the Holy Spirit living in each of us. We are God's presence in this world. That's this kingdom, this heavenly kingdom. Romans 14, 17 says, For the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. Pretty clear distinction there, I think, between spiritual and physical. So it's saying it's not meat and drink. It's not physical. It's these other things. Righteousness, peace, joy in the Holy Ghost. So who is the authority in this heavenly kingdom? Ephesians 1.20 says, Which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that's named not only in this world but also in that which is to come, and hath put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church. So it's pretty clear that Christ is given ultimate authority in this heavenly kingdom. Now I'd like to uh, go to Romans 12. After you see the, the red arrow says uh, authority over a heavenly kingdom, the kingdom of God. Romans 12 now applies more to the heavenly kingdom. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. For I say, through the grace given unto me, to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, according as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, and all members have not the same office, so we, being many, and you can think about our dots around the globe there, are one body in Christ, and every one members one of another. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, whether prophecy, let us prophesy according to the portion of faith, 
<clears throat> or ministry, let us wait on our ministering, or he that teacheth on teaching, or he that exhorteth on exhortation. He that giveth, let him do it with simplicity. He that ruleth with diligence, he that showeth mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be without dissimulation. Abhor that which is evil, cleave to that which is good. Be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love, in honor preferring one another. Not slothful in business, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing instant in prayer, distributing to the necessity of saints, given to hospitality. Bless them which persecute you. Bless and curse not. Rejoice with them that do rejoice, and weep with them that weep. Be of the same mind one toward another. Mind not high things, but condescend to men of low estate. Be not wise in your own conceits. Recompense to no man evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. If it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. For in so doing, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, I don't know about you, but I see a definite contrast between Romans 12 and Romans 13. And I'd like to add one thing here, just a verse from Revelation 11:15. It says, "And the seventh angel sounded, and there were great voices in heaven saying, "The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever." And I bring this into play because Christians all believe that Jesus Christ will be victorious in the end. We all agree on that. It seems like the kingdoms of this world are temporal. They're going to end. And everything's going to be under the kingdom of Christ at one point, some point in the future. I would see what I've just presented now as being the historical Anabaptist uh, view or theology on the, the two-kingdom policy or two-kingdom theology. In my opinion, this is what uh, lies behind our non-resistance and even our non-conformity. We, uh, we believe that um, we're a part of the spiritual kingdom. We're not afraid to uh, live as strangers and pilgrims, live simply, uh, not get too wrapped up in earthly governments and politics and the uh, things of this world, so to speak. <clears throat> so now, time to move on. Maybe you want to stand up and take a break. Everybody's just stand up and shuffle around. I know those chairs can uh, wear on you after a bit. And now you can sit back down again. We're going to change gears. So the first part there was theology. Now for the fun stuff. And I don't know, uh, uh, you know, I've only got ten minutes, so we'll just scratch the surface on a few fun issues here for you. Um... 
How should we relate to government and politics in light of this theology? So I think the key thing is how to change the world for the better. When I talk to my brother-in-law who subscribes to reform theology, which would be influenced by Calvinists, um, his struggle is that he cannot not use everything at your disposal to build the kingdom of God, including politics and government and community programs. Like, you have to build the kingdom of God using all the resources at your disposal. We live in a democratic nation where you can vote, you can uh, run for office, you can make things happen. To not use it is not taking advantage of all the resources we can use to build the kingdom of God. So it's, it's a waste not to use it. I would suggest there's uh, some significant differences between this, these kingdoms, though. So Matthew 20, say, 25 to 28 says, But Jesus called them unto him and said, You know that the princes of the Gentiles exercise dominion over them, and they that are great exercise authority upon them. But it shall not be so among you. But whosoever will be great among you, let him be your minister. Whosoever will be chief among you, let him be your servant. Even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and give his life a ransom for many. Remind you of our devotions this morning? Yeah. So the question arises, should Christians utilize government positions and available political activities to build or further the kingdom of God? What do you all think? I see a fundamental difference between these kingdoms. <clears throat> what does this one use as its primary focus, weapons, goals? You're going to find that governments create laws and enforce them. That's oversimplified, I know, but that's the general idea. Create laws and policies and enforce them, right? The kingdom of God, however, over here, invites people to something higher, but doesn't force people. It invites. It's voluntary. At a foundational level, the kingdom of God is a whosoever believeth. A whosoever will kingdom. Do you see a difference here? To me, there's a pretty clear difference. So what happens if you try to force people to follow biblical principles? If you try to legislate morality, if you combine the good and godly principles of the Bible with the laws and the enforcement of earthly governments? You following? What happens if you take the morality of here and try to use this method to uh, enforce it? Here's a clip from the Viewpoint articles. Whenever the church has embraced political or military power, it has rarely improved society. 
and almost always destroyed its credibility, the church's credibility. Tony Campolo has said, mixing religion and politics is like mixing ice cream and manure. It doesn't do much to the manure, but it sure does ruin the ice cream. In the 1920s, the American church rallied behind the cause of prohibition, citing the devastation that alcoholism has wreaked on our society, which is true. Eventually, this effort succeeded in criminalizing the production, the sale, and the consumption of alcoholic beverages, with a few exceptions, and well-meaning Christians rejoiced in this moral victory. Billy Sunday was among them. He said this, The reign of tears is over. The slums will soon be a memory. We will turn our prisons into factories and our jails into storehouses and corn cribs. Men will walk upright now. Women will smile and children will laugh. Hell will be forever for rent. But the victory turned out to be temporary and shallow. Michael Craven observes these sobering effects of the Prohibition Act. Unfortunately for the Prohibition, the public did not recognize the evil of the thing being prohibited. This is the problem with trying to moralize society through political coercion. Good law follows the cultural and moral consensus. It cannot create it. In other words, the law cannot change the culture as it relates to the actual beliefs and values of society. Law can't change that very much. Finally, the church's aggressive actions in the prohibition of alcohol helped to alter the public perception of the church. In what way do you think? From a valued social institution to an overbearing political interest group determined to impose its will on an unwilling public. You catching that? A lot of people didn't want that rule. And the church became connected with the rule that you can't drink alcohol. The church's characteristic love of neighbor was diminished by a perceived desire to control thy neighbor. This perception would only embolden resistance to the church's role in the public square and its kingdom mission. Political action and nationalism are extremely limited in the lasting change they can bring to any society of unredeemed people. As followers of Christ and citizens of the kingdom of God, we are not passive and isolated from society, but we become a part of the ideal resistance, right here, the ideal resistance to the evil in a fallen world. We are active in bringing real and lasting change to the world. In our Sunday school class, they were talking about reaching out and sharing the gospel, sharing the good news, and how complicated that is. But yes, we engage with people in society not to coerce them into better behavior. We're not trying to force them to be better. But we want to invite them into the lasting transformation that an encounter with Christ can have. We summon them to leave their small ideas of political parties and nationalism. Let that behind and walk into the grandeur and the power of the kingdom of God. 
Over here, I'm seeing a lot of these little political signs. They say, uh, Doug Mastriano for governor, something like that. I'm fascinated by him. I do not doubt his intentions for good. And I've heard, rumor has it, that he was challenged by someone, if you want to see things change, then you need to run and you need to make it change. And so he's following through, doing the hard thing to make it happen. Did you know he's Mennonite? Now, not quite the same kind of Mennonite as we are, but you ever heard of conservative Mennonite conference? I better check my notes here and get this right. I see some people looking a little funny at me. Um, He goes to Pond Bank Community Church, which is a conservative Mennonite conference. And uh, one reporter even got the uh, statement of faith, put it down, uh, and it reads just like ours, pretty much. Uh, it has a section in there that says, we, would, we should not jeopardize our primary allegiance to Jesus by participating in any office, career, or organization that requires us to employ the use of force, military service, or retaliation to accomplish its objectives. We believe the way of love applies to every area of life, including those situations that involve the use of litigation, strikes, international tension, and war. We must, even at the risk of life itself, extend love to every human and alleviate suffering, overcoming evil with love. That's the Pond Bank Community Church. They even offer members of their congregation a form they can fill out if they want to be a conscientious objector, by the way. Is it consistent for an Anabaptist to run for office and promote freedom? If I didn't add the promote freedom, you'd probably be fine. But when I add the promote freedom, you know, that sounds kind of good. I, uh, I think it's going to backfire on him. Uh, on us, possibly, as Christians, when we start mixing these two kingdoms. I watched a little bit of his acceptance speech on the internet, or listened to it, and um, he was playing worship music, and he did the, God is good, and people said all the time, and all the time, God is good. And um, he's running on a solidly Christian foundation. I want to hasten to say I don't doubt his uh, uh, desire to do what's right and follow God. I just struggle with the fact that what he's doing is taking the Romans 12 side of things, the morality, we want to see good laws, we want to see, and it's happening right now in our country, you know, the the uh, non-Christians and even some Christians are upset about some of the laws being made. I don't know what I think about it all. I can tell you this, making laws and enforcing them is not going to change the hearts of people. And if we don't have mainstream America in a position or a frame of mind or a culture or a set of values that wants these laws, 
then it's pretty much useless. Uh, we're going to end up just like back in the prohibition where they outlawed alcoholism and it's going to last a little bit and basically what it does is makes a mockery out of us as a minority group who's trying desperately to force everyone else to follow our belief system. Well folks, this, the kingdom of God, is supposed to be voluntary, right? You don't have to follow Christ if you don't want to. The government's job, true, is to make people behave. And we are supposed to make some, you know, basic laws and keep things in order. That's what the government exists for. But that's not the high calling. The high calling is to change people's hearts through the good news. And I just feel like in our circles, what we've done is tended to uh, miss out on the high calling and um, get kind of caught up in this. I got a bunch more stuff, but... Uh, we're out of time here. I'm going to quit with that. If I go back here to the uh, conclusion. <clears throat> Matthew 13. is a parable of the tares, the wheat, tares being the weeds. And uh, I'd like to suggest to you that that whole parable talks a lot about the kingdom of God growing together with evil. And I think in our circles, too often, we get focused on the evil. And we're looking around and we're just all freaked out about the possibility of communism coming, or the possibility of the mark of the beast, or whatever it might be. We're just all scared about the evil around us. And I think sometimes we completely overlook the fact that there's a kingdom of God that's growing along with the evil. In Revelation, there's a mark of the lamb as well as the mark of the beast. Um, we tend to emphasize the wrong one, you know, a negative side because it plays to our fears, it's more dramatic. Um, just think about that. That, uh, you know, this, this kingdom of God is growing. And you know what? I'd suggest to you nothing's going to stop it. Kingdoms of this world will come and go. Governments will be set up and torn down. Good rulers will rise and bad rulers will rise and be taken down. But the kingdom of God is something that we're building that's eternal. The goal doesn't seem to be stop, to stop the evildoer immediately. This is what I'm, lessons I'm learning from this uh, parable here. But to trust that harvest time will be a time of righteous reckoning where everything is sorted out properly. The vision I want you to catch is that we as Christians are called to be a vibrant, passionate, offensive part of building the kingdom of God. But we don't do it with swords and guns and force. We fight Satan in the works of darkness with our spiritual weapons. We build the kingdom of God by inspiring others to follow our example of a suffering Savior. And here's the last slide I have. See that little lamb up there in the corner? 
I believe that uh, Jesus can be pictured by a lamb and by a lion and by a lot of different things. But when it comes to our attitude about government, our attitude about uh, the world around us, Jesus acted like a lamb. He said, put away your sword when it was time to defend. He said, don't you know, don't you know, to the disciples, don't you know what? Anybody know? Yeah, so he proved it by saying, don't you know that I could... Right, I could call 10,000, 10, 10 legions of angels or 10,000 legions of angels, whatever he says. I can't even remember. It's in my notes somewhere. Don't you know? Like, what are you doing here? You whip out your little sword and act like you're going to really make a difference here. Don't you know? I could call 10,000 legions of angels. Like, we're comparing earthly with heavenly. We're not even on the same page here, folks. Don't you know? Get it, get it through your little heads. It's a glorious kingdom, even now, this kingdom of God. Let's press forward into the fight, building Christ's kingdom. Let's be encouraged. I'll turn the time back over to 